0: Welcome to The Vine Line. My name is James White, and we are coming to you uh, live today uh, along with uh, Rich Pierre, the second most popular Frenchman in the world, only second to Inspector Clouseau himself. I've seen a lot of similarities personally uh, between Inspector Clouseau and Brother Rich, but um, anyways, it's uh, good to be with you, and we are going to do a deep dive into church history again today, sort of continuing a little bit with uh, what we have, um, uh, what we started on the, the last program when we went into the subject of the Immaculate Conception, I think it's very important for anyone who's going to be doing any apologetics work at all to have a very, very serious understanding. Uh, well, look, for decades now, whenever anyone has asked me um, what two classes, what classes did you take in, in college and seminary that have been the most important to you in apologetics work? And I've always had the same answer, Greek and church history. And not everybody gets to take Greek, though there's lots of opportunities these days, honestly, to be able to, to do so, lots of ways of doing so, even on, on your own, though that's, that's a little bit tough. Um, but uh, church history is that area it's the one area that allows us to see ourselves. It really is. It it, it functions as a mirror. We, We are too close to the conflicts and controversies of our own day to really have any perspective. But when we look back in church history, the neat thing about Christian church history that you don't have in any other history. Now, okay, you do have it on one level we're all human beings. We're all made in the image of God. So therefore there are consistencies. There's, there's a reason why, for example, in military uh, training, you still study the battles of people who lived long, long, long ago. Why? Uh, because they were human beings and human beings will behave in a certain way. In the same way, even more so in church history, what you have is you have the reality of the fact that we are dealing with the work of the spirit of God in building the church for a extensive period of time. And so we can get somewhat of a, a little bit of a perspective to, to look at ourselves when we study church history. And so it's extremely valuable just on that, on that level. Apologetically, however, it's vitally important. And we can also, as a result of studying church history, see the relationship between that area of study and Sola Scriptura. If you don't see how scriptural sufficiency has been absolutely central in understanding how the history of the church has developed, you're going to be in in a world of hurt. And so we are going to get into... Uh, The subject of the Marian dogmas, once again, we touched on one. Well, I commented on some others. But specifically in reference to the issue of Sola Scriptura. Are the Marian dogmas Christian theology? Are they representative of what the apostles themselves taught? Or do they come from another source? That really, is, that really is the question. So I have a, a presentation uh, to be able to uh, show you. And hopefully, it will come across fairly clearly. Uh, here is uh, the beginning of that presentation. I'll go back and forth, though you don't really need to see me all that much anyways. I'm not much to look at. Uh, what's the fundamental issue that we want to get to uh, today? If a person who had never heard of the Bible, never read the Bible, picked it up and read it and was asked, does this book teach that Jesus' mother is the sinless queen of heaven who was bodily assumed into heaven at the end of her life, conceived without the stain of original sin, and never had other children, the look of confusion on the face of the reader would be fully Understandable. But this illustrates really the central issue. And the central issue is sola scriptura. Not solo scriptura, not the scripture by itself outside of the context of what God is doing in the church, not solo scriptura in the sense of you. And your Bible under the tree, and that's all that God ever intended. You're never to look at what God has done in preceding generations. We don't look back upon history. No, none of those things are true. So law scriptura is simply the teaching that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith of the church. It doesn't mean we do not have secondary rules of faith. It does not mean that we cannot learn from church history, but scripture has a nature of authority. That is fundamentally different than any other authority available to the church, that, that God has specifically given to the church to be used by the church in her ministry and in her following of Christ. So if one believes in sola scriptura, one will never embrace the Roman Catholic dogmas on Mary for the simple reason that no meaningful form of exegesis would ever lead you to those conclusions. The interpretation Roman Catholic apologists use to derive the Marian dogmas differs markedly from that used to defend the Trinity, for example. This is a very, very important point. It's a point we make over and over again, but we need to emphasize it. And that is, you look for consistency of interpretation. You look for consistency of of interpretation. We have emphasized this repeatedly, that the best way to detect tradition, even as Christians debate with one another, as uh, I've made the allegation that when I debate my Presbyterian friends on the subject of baptism, all of a sudden they start using a different form of exegesis in the defense of their view of that, and that to me is, that's the sign of tradition. You've got a tradition there, and so you're moving your way around it as best that you possibly can. Well, when we move outside of the Orthodox faith and start dealing with those who claim to be Christians but have other sources of authority and things like that, immediately you discover that they don't really have any uh, commitment to a consistency of interpretation, a consistency of hermeneutics, a consistency of exegesis, how you interpret the text. That's somewhat understandable because, sadly, most Christians do not, most Christians simply do not have a consistent commitment to an understanding of how to interpret Scripture. That's just, that's just the way, that's just the way things are. And so... But this is but this is the hallmark of truth. People are always asking, "Well, how can you tell? You know, this person says this, and that person says that. And how can anyone really tell consistency? Consistency. If you claim to be a Trinitarian, now Roman Catholics will often say that without the Church, you could never uh, understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Anyway, and it was it required the Church to do this, the Church to do that. They don't really fundamentally believe that the Bible is sufficient to present the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, But for those who believe in the Trinity, have defended the Trinity from Scripture, you know the methodology, you know an understanding of the language, the background, uh, consistency of Scripture from one Scripture to another Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. This is not the kind of interpretation that is used to substantiate Reading into Luke one forty eight, an entire edifice of theology regarding Mary. It's not. It's not the same methodology at all, and so there will be a markedly different way of interpretation um, for that particular individual. So, no topic to me more clearly demonstrates the absolute necessity of holiness scripture as the sole infallible rule of faith in the Roman Catholic dogmas and doctrines that are now taught 2000 years after the birth of Christ, almost 2000 years after the last apostle had died uh, and yet are being taught as if they are dogma, as if they can be bound upon the very um, hearts and minds of believing individuals. And so, uh, this is, I think, extremely important. It's not just important in regards to dealing with Roman Catholicism. It's important in dealing with almost any group uh, that, you would, uh, that you would be uh, working with. So let's go back to the presentation here. Before looking at the facts, biblically and historically, let's ask a question. What constitutes authentic Christian teaching? I would like to submit to you that the New Testament does, in fact, give us an answer to that particular inquiry: what is authentic Christian teaching? First, Jesus plainly held men accountable not to unwritten traditions, but to revealed truths of Scripture. In Matthew chapter twenty-two, verse thirty-one, remember when the Sadducees present the story of the woman taken, uh, the woman uh, who had seven. Husbands, seven brothers, according to the, the Old Testament law. And they all died, who should she be married to in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Jesus' response to them at that time was to point them to Scripture. Have you not read what God spoke to you saying? So Jesus held men accountable. He's holding men accountable to the written Scriptures, even though those scriptures had been written 1,400 years earlier, he says that they were, they, these were words that were spoken to them. That is how uh, centrally important the scripture is to Jesus' understanding of how God communicates and how God holds men accountable for what they find in scripture. Of course, we know the key text, all scripture, is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. And is therefore profitable for what? For for us to just simply have our own personal interpretations and, well, this makes me feel this way or feel that way. No, all scripture is God-breathed, and because it is God-breathed, it is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, these are the things that the man of God needs to be doing in the church. There needs to be teaching. There needs to be communication of divine truth. And since scripture is God-breathed, therefore it's profitable for that. So what does that mean? That which is not God-breathed cannot be as profitable as that which is God-breathed for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here is the unique soul character of that which is theanoustos, God-breathed. Nothing else the church possesses is theanoustos. The church is not theanustas. And because the church has this resource, so that the man of God may be proficient, qualified, equipped, sufficient for performing every good work. There cannot be a good work defined for the man of God that the theanustas scriptures does not equip him to perform, and certainly teaching that Mary is bodily assumed into heaven, that Mary is immaculate conceived, that Mary is a perpetual virgin. These are things that a Roman Catholic will tell you are good deeds, but Scripture does not ever even begin to hint at such beliefs. If a belief is based in that which is not God-breathed, it is not binding upon Christians and is therefore not authentic Christian teaching. Now, listen carefully to this. I think this is very, very important. And I, I noticed that a lot of my um I noticed that a lot of my uh a lot of my friends who are paddling around out in the Tiber River. Don't seem to feel the weight of this observation, but I've never had anyone provide much of a meaningful response. To be perfectly honest with you, not a single bishop who met at the Council of Nicaea in AD three twenty five. And if you're if you're new to the study of church history, if you're new to this program, I've said many times before that <laughs> I, uh, if you take church history from me, you just know that on the final. One of the things you must know is the date of the Council of Nicaea. So you just just tattoo it on your brain, uh, just get it down, AD 325, Council of Nicaea. And, of course, we spend time digging into what happened at that particular council. But it's considered the first ecumenical council, the first council of the whole, all the, all the church, the world. And, of course, at the time, they didn't know that. At the time, they, there was no knowledge on their part that this was the first ecumenical council or there'd be other ecumenical councils. Or, uh, they, they were simply meeting because there was a tremendous division in the church over the nature of Christ and his relationship to the Father. And so they met in council in 8325. And here's the point. Not a single bishop who met at the Council of Nicaea, central to the definition of the relationship of father and son, and therefore everything else in theology, everything else flows from this. Everything else is relevant to this. Not a single bishop at that council believed what modern Roman Catholicism defines as dogmatically true about Mary today. Not a single one. Now, if Rome's claims are to have merit, they all should have believed these things. But Roman Catholic historians recognize that's not the case. But people need to understand that the church was able to deal with an issue like this without anyone there believing what Rome now says, de fide, you must believe to faithfully follow Christ and his church. Think about that. Think about what that means. If modern Roman Catholic teachings are true, then God allowed many centuries to pass without anyone believing the full truth about them. So, Think about it. Uh, think about it this way: um, How important can the bodily assumption of Mary be if God allowed one thousand nine hundred years to pass before making sure people understood it was a divinely revealed truth? And how is it that you could literally have the first? five centuries of the Christian era passed before anyone even mentioned it. And then when they mentioned it, they mentioned it only as the teaching of heretics, not as something that was taught by Christians. It really seems to me that, ha- that requires an extremely low view of the importance of the early church an extremely low view of the importance of the early church that these de fide dogmas would not even be known to them would not even they wouldn't even know anything about it hmm I wonder how that works uh, i don't think that it does um and it's something again i'm just i'm, I'm asking that you think about what these things things mean. Now, in fact, I think it is indisputable that no one in the first 1,500 years of church history believed as dogma what modern Roman Catholicism has defined to be true. And I mean that in the entirety of what Rome has revealed to be de fide dogma, which would include, for example, the last three doctrines that have been defined by Rome. Immaculate Conception, Papal Infallibility, and the bodily Assumption of Mary. Yet, despite this reality, Rome claims her teachings are true and ancient. And she condemns with the anathema those who would reject her claims. That means this is not a matter of possibilities. Rome makes eternity rest upon these very teachings. This isn't just a matter of opinion. This is a matter of eternity itself. Now, if you'd like to do some reading in yearly church, and I highly recommend that, obviously, uh, there are certain fundamental foundational truths to recognize when reading in church history. Um, We'll be talking a lot about that during the course of our study today. But Bishop Fulgentius of Rusp, Bishop Fulgentius of Rusp. Now, he was not well known in the past. More of his writings have become available really over the past century. Reading him is is indeed a, a breath of fresh air. Uh, Especially given his time frame, you will notice that he is post-Augustinian. So he is uh, born about two-thirds of the way through the 5th century and and dies in the first third of the 6th century, given the dates there that you can see. And notice these words from him, given the references there. P.L., by the way, is always uh, Patrologia Latinae. Um, the huge, massive collection of the writings of, of church fathers in Latin over against patologia Grece, uh, which, of course, is the, uh, the Greek version thereof. This is the grace whereby it came to pass that God, who came to take away sins because sin was not in him, was conceived and born a man in the similitude of sinful flesh. The flesh of Mary, forsooth, which had been conceived in iniquities after the manner of men, was indeed sinful flesh, which bore the Son of God in the similitude of sinful flesh. We must believe that the only begotten God did not derive the defilement of sin from the mortal flesh of the Virgin. Truly therefore Mary conceived God the word which she bore in sinful flesh which God received. Now Bishop Fulgentius is living after Augustine, after the Pelagian controversies, long after all of the Christological controversies of Leading up to, for example, the Council of Chalcedon. And yet, he speaks like this. He says that the flesh of Mary was indeed sinful flesh, which bore the Son of God in the similitude of sinful flesh. We must believe that the only begotten God, I appreciate that phrase, the only begotten God, if you're not familiar why, I appreciate that. Look at John one eighteen. Um, did not derive the defilement of sin from the mortal flesh of the virgin. Truly, therefore, Mary conceived God the word, which she bore in sinful flesh, which God received. Now, we know that Fulgentius was a learned bishop. He was well acquainted with Augustine's writings, yet plainly had no concept of the Immaculate Conception, never breathed a word about the bodily assumption, no evidence of any belief in such concepts as Queen of Heaven or Mary as co-redemptrix, mediatrix of all graces, etc., and etc. Was Fulgentius just ignorant of the apostolic tradition? Or is the real fact that there was no such tradition? Now I think we need to at that point be very we, we need to recognize that when Rome claims tradition as the source of her beliefs, this is a very convenient source because Rome can never tell you what tradition is. I remember when I first started doing debates on Roman Catholicism, of course those were the first debates we did, back in the 1990s and I was debating gerrymatics when I would quote from an early church writer, um, what would happen would be, well, well, James, he, he's not representing tradition there. But he can quote from anything from patristic sources. And, well, that's, that's, that's tradition. That's what we're supposed to hold to. That's what Paul said when he said hold to the traditions. There, there it is right there. But what then I'd quote from that material and that's not tradition because who gets to say what tradition is rome does this is why once again let me emphasize this i believe in sola scriptura the consistent faith of a roman catholic believes in sola ecclesia that the church is the sole infallible rule of faith and no matter how hard a roman catholic tries to get out from under that rubric, that name, every attempt that they make only proves the point, especially when you raise the issue of the dogmas that Rome has defined, especially in regards to Mary or in regards to the papacy. So what is scripture? Well, Rome tells you. Rome has canonical authority. What does scripture mean? Well, Rome tells you, because Rome can interpret scripture infallibly. Well, what is tradition? Rome tells you. That's tradition, that's not. What does tradition mean? Well, Rome tells you. She's the infallible authority there as well. So that's what sola ecclesia means. She she cannot be under the authority of a source that she defines and interprets by herself. She is in a dialogue with herself. She's in a monologue with herself. That's why no real reform can take place because there's no external source to be able to provide that kind of, of reformation. And so sola Ecclesia is where Rome is coming from. Sola Scriptura is where we are coming from. And when you compare the two, you can see that one is a self-defeating position. It, uh, it truly, truly is. Now, No meaningful exegetical approach to scripture will ever lead one to believe the Marian dogmas. I said that before. I'm repeating it again. No meaningful exegetical approach. So in other words, when Roman Catholic apologists camp on Cacaritimene to try to turn it into an assertion of Mary's, being full of grace at the Annunciation, that's not how you would handle any other text of Scripture. It's not how they deal with karata'o when it's used of believers. It's not how they deal with perfect passive participles when, they're, when it's dealing with believers. There is no consistency. So no meaningful exegetical approach to Scripture will ever lead one to believe the Marian dogmas because those dogmas contain as an essential element of their own definitions, material that is derived from outside of Scripture. Mary is presented in Scripture as the blessed servant of God, but one who is a redeemed woman, not immaculately conceived when she called god her savior she meant that as any jewish woman in the taniatic period would have understood that language she was not utilizing definitions that would not become dogmatically defined until 1854 while theotokos or in modern greek it's normally pronounced theotokos While Theotokos, as a Christological title, what does that mean? Literally, it means God-bearer, God-bearer, Tikto, to give birth. Theos, God, Theotokos, the one who gives birth to God, hence often rendered as mother of God. While Theotokos, as a Christological title, is biblical, when used as an exaltative of Mary, it is not. Now, let me, let me expand upon this just, just for a moment, uh, because I think this is very important. Many evangelicals become very, 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 very um, uncomfortable around this term, just like they become uncomfortable around the term uh, Eucharist, even though it's the Greek term to give thanks, which we're supposed to do all the time. There is a biblically appropriate, historically appropriate utilization of the term Theotokos. It is proper to call Mary the mother of God in the context in which that phrase first arose. That's completely different from calling her mother of God within the system that has developed in Roman Catholicism that exalts her and makes her one to whom you pray, seek grace, entrust yourself for your salvation, all these others, uh, all these other utterly blasphemous uh, concepts. Theotokos was originally a Christological title, Christological, not Mariological, Christological. It was about Jesus. It was affirming that when Jesus is born, he is already the God man. So, over against such early errors as adoptionism, the idea that Jesus was adopted as the Son of God at a point in time later on, um, and what would become known as Nestorianism, though Nestorius may not have believed it, um, the affirmation is that the hypostatic union is not a later event in Jesus' experience. It is definitional of who he is from the very beginning. So Theotokos protects the unity of the personhood of Jesus, one person with two natures. Therefore, it's important. Therefore, it should be affirmed by anyone who is really familiar with the theological issues that we are attempting to address. So why then is there an objection to it? Why then did even Nestorius have an objection to it? Well, because it it does raise some interesting questions. Uh, God doesn't have a mother, and that's not what it was originally saying. It wasn't saying that God has a mother. It was saying that when God became incarnate, that he truly became incarnate. He's truly man. And if you're truly man, you have a mother, unless you're Adam, and that's not what's being asserted. So uh, we need to be very, very careful. Affirm the terms proper utilization. Recognize the improper utilization. And be able to explain the difference be able to explain the difference. I think that is uh, is rather uh, important. Okay, let's go back to uh, the presentation here. The allegorical methods used to find fitting parallels to Mary or to say there is at least nothing in opposition to various Marian beliefs is insufficient for the grounding of positive dogmatic beliefs. Anyone who has Uh, listened to the presentations of Roman Catholic apologists and speakers and uh, Mariologists and the like know that allegory fitting parallels to Mary are the sum and substance of the argumentation that is given. They are not, that's not how you prove the Trinity, that's not how you demonstrate the resurrection, but that is all you have for the Marian dogmas is fitting parallels. The Ark of the Covenant and Queen Mother parallels are not only exceedingly weak, they are further damaged by simply asking how many centuries it took for any Christian writer to see them. And let me just very, very quickly explain what, what that's all about. Um, I've told the story before, I'll go ahead and tell it again, once again, because we have so many new listeners, people who haven't heard the program before. Um, I I remember very, very clearly, and I'll go ahead and give you the the timing on this because you younger folks find this to be somewhat humorous for some reason. Um, I was riding bike, I've been riding bike for a long time, I started in 93 So sometime during that 93 to 98 period, that was my first period of riding. Then I got off bike and became a weightlifter um, and got real big and got back on bike in 2005 and have been riding ever ever since then. Uh, But even back then, I would use that bike riding time as a time of study. And back then we had these, I should have grabbed one. I'm not sure that I even have one here at home. Probably do. I probably got, got one over there. We had something called a cassette tape. Yes, a cassette tape. And that's how you listened to things is you buy cassette tapes or you record stuff on cassette tapes. And I decided on a ride that I was gonna to listen to Jerry Matic's presentation on Mary in the Bible. Now I was raised as a as a good conservative independent fundamental, Baptist, well, actually we are GRB, but that's sort of the same thing. Um, General, Association, General Association of Regular Baptists uh, before joining a Southern Baptist church in my teen years. And so to say that the Marian dogmas would not have been, a, you know, much of my upbringing is, is sort of to speak the obvious. What I listened to blew me away. Blew me away. I did not know how to respond to it. I had, when you are, when you're raised with the assumption that the other side has no biblical arguments, then you're never going to be ready for their biblical arguments. And that's one of the things that, you know, once your horizons expand and you start dealing with more people, uh, you start learning, uh, to prioritize your beliefs, what's core, what's central, you know the circles, so on and so forth. Uh, that's when you really start gaining maturity and, and a firm grounding. It also helps you to respond to new things that you'd never even thought of before. And as I listened to Jerry Matitix, remember Matics was a at the time was ABD, all but dissertation at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He was John Gerstner's, uh, favorite, uh, teacher's assistant. Very bright guy. Uh, finished, a, I think an undergraduate degree in Greek. Uh, Jerry, I don't know where Jerry is these days. Uh, but he can probably still out talk me by a long shot. Like I've said, I don't think Jerry Matics has lungs. I think he has gills. So he can just keep on talking. Never has to take a breath, but, um, he it, it, it blew me away. And I came back from that bike ride going, oh my goodness. And I remember taking that cassette tape. I, rem- I remember the cassette tape deck. Now you go, how would you listen to cassette tape on a ride? We had something called a Walkman. Yes. And <laughs> a Walkman would weigh you know, about 10 times what a iPod would, or especially the uh, the really cool iPods I ended up Getting, I've still got one over here. Uh, so here's, here's one of my, I mean, that weighs about what a, a two-hour cassette would have uh, weighed right there. Um, but uh, I remember exactly what the cassette tape, because it was a cassette tape deck that I used in my car. I didn't have one um, when I went to high school. This was after high school, but I had kept this one. This is the one that I put on the seat next to me. That was my music when I drove to school because I had a long drive to school. Uh, that's how I'd listen to the Imperials and stuff like that while I was uh, driving to school. And uh, I remember putting that cassette tape in there and starting that thing. And I sat, I, I sat down at, at my, wow, was that a, might have been 80, 88. We might have had a 380 by then. Were we up to Pentiums by then? I'm starting to lose track of that stuff. I'm, I'm not exactly certain. I'm thinking 8088 right now, maybe. Maybe I opened a WordStar file, (laughs) put in a few dot commands. I'm really dating myself here. We're really talking ancient history here. Anyway, I opened up a file, and I started listening again to the cassette tape. And when he would make a claim that such and such a verse Like I remember very clearly that he said in the Greek Septuagint, the term that is used uh, for the glory cloud over the Ark of the Covenant is the same word that's used over here by Luke or something like that. So stop the tape. Back then I did not have Accordance, Logos, Olive Tree, PC Study Bible, whatever. There was no internet at this point in time. I think... Uh, it may have just been being started. Um, I'm not uh, mm, right around that time, but there wasn't, there wasn't no such thing as Google. There wasn't even an Alta Vista back then, uh, which which was before Google. Anyway, uh, I had to get books out and do this the old fashioned way. And so he says that the term in Luke is the same in the Greek Septuagint. And so I'm getting, I've got my old Ralph's Greek Septuagint, uh, and uh, which is right back there, and uh, same one. And I'm looking at that, and I'm looking at the Greek New Testament, and I'm checking everything out that he's saying. It took hours for just one presentation. It took hours but I had to do it. He was wrong about almost everything he'd said. It sounded good. It could not survive someone sitting there with the Greek New Testament, the Greek Old Testament, a, the Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Donker Back then, it was the green second edition, uh, B-A-G-D instead of BDAG. Um, it couldn't survive that kind of analysis, but I had to do the analysis because I had never heard anything like this before. I had never heard anything like this before. And so I was challenged by it. And so I had to check it all out. And I did, and I can say for myself, I've found out where the errors were and have brought those errors up to Mr. Mattatix over the years in the debates we've done since that time. But when you first hear them, when you first hear about the Ark of the Covenant... And you, you hear someone drawing all these allegorical connections between the Ark of the Covenant, Mary, and say, see, this is, this is the connection here, and there's a connection there. And, and uh, the word that's used when the baby leaps in the womb is the, the word used when the priest, uh, or, when, uh, or, or was it when uh, David leapt before the Ark, and, and, and stuff like that. And there are parallels there are certain parallels, especially when you're dealing with similar contexts. but there are certain parallels that can be uh, drawn. And New Testament writers do try to make parallels to Old Testament texts. That's, that's not even really a question, but it's the unique teachings about Mary unknown to the New Testament writers that are just simply not there. They're, they're being read in and being read in very, very uh, poorly. Uh, but when you first hear it, man, it sounds convincing. I, Fully get it. And I can see how someone raised within fundamentalism, raised within standard evangelicalism, would be very impressed. And if you're, and see, here's the thing if you are dissatisfied with where you are, all of a sudden you have a significantly more open mind to hearing what someone else is saying, someone like that. I've seen that happen over and over again. Thankfully, I've seen people who have left for these falsehoods who then came back uh, years later. Now, so unlike the arguments for true Christian teachings, such as the Trinity, the resurrection, the atonement, the virgin birth, are the arguments for the Marian dogmas that I was once asked by a Roman Catholic apologist— If I could provide a single text in the Bible that specifically said Mary had committed a particular sin or that Mary had specifically born other children. Of course, the Bible does not specifically note by name 99.999% of all who have committed acts of sin. So on that basis, the vast majority of humankind must be sinless because they are not specifically accused of a specific act of sin by name, right? Of course. Now, the modern complex of Marian dogmas and doctrines shows that Rome's claim to function on the basis of scripture and tradition is utterly fallacious, and it is. It is. That's why, that's why you know a lot of people will say, What well, why do you? Why do you focus so much just on on the Marian dogmas? Why are you constantly talking about something like that? The the reason is not difficult to find. Uh, Two of the three dogmas that have been defined over the past 170 years are about Mary. The other is papal infallibility. And so where else are you going to go to examine Rome's claims to being consistent with tradition than to what she herself has defined as being that tradition and has done so within the most recent time frame. Where else are you going to go? These are the issues that we have to address. Um, So I assert that these Marian dogmas, including those that were defined before, such as perpetual virginity of Mary, shows that Rome's claim to function, and Rome will always claim, we, no, we we function on the basis of scripture and tradition, scripture and tradition. That claim is, I believe, utterly fallacious. The two most modern Roman teachings, the doctrine of Mary as queen of heaven, mediatrix of all graces, co-redemptrix of Christ, doctrine taught by popes for 100 plus years, and the dogma of the bodily assumption are simply unknown in either scripture or tradition. Now, let me, you're, you're looking at these and going, what? is any of that again terms that we are not familiar with at all within conservative christian backgrounds um mary as queen of heaven automatically you start seeing you know these pictorial representations with stars over her head and things like that But mediatrix of all graces and co-redemptrix with Christ. Now, these are not dogma, but they are doctrine taught by popes for over 100 years. You can go back into the late 1800s and find popes utilizing this language when speaking of Mary in their teachings. That does not make it a dogma. It doesn't have to be believed by faith. That's what de fide dogma is. But it has been taught by the popes for over 100 years. I don't know what the current pope's view of these things is, but neither is anybody else. And the dogma of the bodily assumption, 1950, defined with the anathema, are simply unknown in either scripture or tradition. There's not... The only way you can define tradition in such a way as to get the bodily assumption into it is to go well past the first half millennium of church history. You have to include what you get out of the medieval period as part of tradition. And there are some that are willing to do that, but... One can search tens of thousands of pages of sermons and books from the first millennia of Christian writings without finding these teachings to have any sound evidence of having an apostolic origin. Even when exalted, hyperbolic language is used in Mary in this period, and that certainly happens a lot, it lacks the foundational context to be made even slightly relevant to the full definition of these doctrines as they are used within Roman Catholicism today. This is what a fair reading of that material will show you. As we work backwards, we find the next dogma, the Immaculate Conception, finding its first formulation in a British monk named Edmer at the beginning of the 12th century. Even then it was opposed in its modern dogmatic form as an innovation by Bernard of Clairvaux Peter Lombard, Alexander of Hales, Bonaventura, Albert the Great, Albertus Maximus, and Thomas Aquinas. Going further back, we find a consistent universal teaching that Jesus and Jesus alone was conceived without original sin and born sinless in this world. This includes not only the great theologians, despite numerous later forgeries and misrepresenting such luminaries as Augustine, but numerous bishops of Rome as well. Roman Catholic writers list numerous patristic writers who had no problem seeing the biblical narrative indicating acts of sin on Mary's part, including Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, John Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria, and Basil of Caesarea. Eamon Carroll has written regarding the period of Augustine, quote, many more centuries of thought and prayer were required before the church would realize that the Immaculate Conception was among the gifts God provided for his mother. Quoting from Mary in the Documents of the Magisterium and Mariology, Volume 1, by Juniper B. Carroll. So notice, many more centuries of thought and prayer were required before the church would realize. So no one then, remember what I said, no one at the Council of Nicaea? Well, there's confirmation of that. Would realize that the Immaculate Conception was among the gifts God provided for his mother. So no one knew it then, Now the apostles knew it, Mary certainly didn't know it, but you have to believe it as dogma now. Think about what that means. Finally, we come, and notice the title that I have here, Undercutting... The incarnation, undercutting the incarnation. Finally, we come to what may be the most troubling, even though the most ancient of the Marian doctrines the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, the natural reading of the text of Scripture speaks of Jesus' brothers and sisters and the family of Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and his brothers and sisters living in nazareth that is the natural reading of the text the biblical narrative of the birth of christ contains not a hit uh, not even a hint of the concept of the birth being painless or unnatural the greek term is tikto it's be the same it's, it's just like going back into the old testament uh, and looking at yalad and yeled in the prophecy in isaiah chapter 9 uh, Tiktoe means to give birth. And there is nothing provided in the text that in any way gives us a foreign context to the giving of the birth. For Jesus to be our sin bearer, his humanity had to be real. He has to be the God man. He truly has to have entered into flesh, not just took it on in appearance for a brief period of time, but especially in light of the nature of the imputed righteousness of Christ, then his life had to be a life that was truly lived as a man. The Roman Catholic concept of perpetual virginity is unknown to Scripture. So where did it come from? The earliest sources to promote the idea of an unnatural birth of Jesus are not orthodox, but are instead tinged with Gnostic concepts. These include the Protevangelium of James, the Ascension of Isaiah, and the Odes of Solomon. You may put each one of these names into the search bar. If you want to, go ahead and put those names. Protevangelium of James, Ascension of Isaiah, Odes of Solomon. Put that in the search bar at aomim.org. And you will discover previous editions of The Dividing Line, we called them Story Time with Uncle Jimmy, where I read the entirety of these works, all of it. So you'll, I mean, you can find all of them online. They will be in some interesting sources, but you can not find them all. Read them for yourself. Listen to them. See just how massively different they are in character and scope and message than what we have in the New Testament. Check it out for yourself. I think it'll, it'll speak for yourself, uh, speak to you, and it'll be very, very clear. The Roman Catholic concept found in these, these sources, you'll find the parallels in these, and where do they come from? Well, Indeed, when Clement of Alexandria, now Clement of Alexandria, one of the early writers in the Alexandrian school, and certainly one that one would find uh, highly questionable in his exegetical prowess, shall we say. When Clement of Alexandria defends the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, he makes specific reference to the Protevangelium of James which he evidently accepts as a valid, trustworthy source. It most surely is not a trustworthy source. But just here we see the danger of abandoning sola scriptura, and Clement fell into that problem in in many, many places. So let's look at some of these. Uh, Like I said, we've read these in times past, but let's just look at a few of the quotations from some of these sources that Roman Catholic sources themselves recognize as being central to where this concept came from outside of scripture from odes 19, the odes of Solomon, a cup of milk was offered to me and I drank it in the sweetness of the Lord's kindness. The son is the cup and the father is he who was milked and the Holy spirit is she who milked him because his breasts were full and it was undesirable that his milk should be ineffectually released. The Holy Spirit opened her bosom and mixed the milk of the two breasts of the Father. Then she gave the mixture to the generation without their knowing, and those who have received it are in the perfection of the right hand. The womb of the Virgin took it, and she received conception and gave birth, So the virgin became a mother with great mercies, and she labored and bore the son, but without pain, because it did not occur without purpose. And she did not require a midwife, because he caused her to give life. She brought forth like a strong man with desire, and she bore according to the manifestation, and she acquired according to the great power. And she loved with redemption, and guarded with kindness, and declared with grandeur. Hallelujah. Now, I think it is important to recognize some of that terminology. Only a few of you who are still awake at this point did And you did because you were listening carefully to the Ken Wilson response because the language of the great power and other phraseology that's used there comes straight out of Gnosticism and hence finds place even in Manichaeism as well because of the Gnostic influence. But that's where it comes from. None of this comes from the worldview of scripture. None of it comes from the apostles. It comes from outside of scripture. And yet, is central to the development of one of the primary Marian dogmas, that then gives rise to the other Marian dogmas as well. So continuing looking at the undercutting uh, of the incarnation from the ascension of Isaiah. And after two months of days, while Joseph was in his house and Mary, his wife, but both alone, it came about when they were alone That Mary then looked with her eyes and saw a small infant, and she was astounded. And after her astonishment had worn off, her womb was found as it was at first, before she had conceived. And when her husband Joseph said to her, What has made you astounded? His eyes were opened, and he saw the infant and praised the Lord, because the Lord had come in his lot. This is the ascension of Isaiah. So notice, Jesus does not have a normal birth. Instead, Mary looks and, ta-da, there he is. He's just beamed out. And her womb was found as it was at first before she had conceived. Now, some of the sources go into um, great detail that I'm not going to go into about this examination of Mary. Let me just put it this way. Rome's dogmatic teaching on this subject is that Mary's virginal integrity was kept intact by a lot, not just spiritually, but biologically as well. Let me just put it this way. A baby cannot be born if the virginal integrity is intact. All right? So the only way that Jesus can come out of Mary is basically to beam out in some kind of miraculous, physical, physically impossible, but spiritually accomplished event. And it is first discussed in sources such as these. Um, And from the Protevangelium of James, and immediately the cloud disappeared out of the cave and a great light shone in the cave. So the eyes could not bear it. And a little, that light gradually decreased until the infant appeared and went and took the breast from his mother, Mary. So there's this great, great light and everyone's blinded by this great, great light. And then as the light slowly diminishes, there's the baby. No birth, no blood, no pain. Star Trek beam out. There he is. Scotty was up there. I got him, Captain. That's what you've got. That's what you've got. This... Thoroughly undercuts the incarnation. Thoroughly undercuts the reality of Christ's human nature. Does not come from scriptural sources or even from truly Christian sources, if you know anything about Gnosticism at all. In fact, the more you study Gnosticism, the more you realize, oh, yeah, okay. Well, they wouldn't want, they wouldn't want a natural birth not for one who has such an exalted position. So yeah, you just have a big old light and it comes from the realm of light and therefore there he is. And yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense within Gnosticism and within Roman Catholicism. That should tell you everything you need to know right there. That's why solo scripture is so important. That's why once you deny it, you end up believing Gnostic myths. Then you know how you got there, but you do. So, once again, are these authentic Christian teaching? The Trinity is an authentic Christian teaching. Why? It is based upon sound principles of pan-canonical biblical interpretation from Genesis to Revelation. It's sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Scripture alone, and all of Scripture. That makes it authentic Christian teaching. It is necessarily contained in the very words of Scripture. You cannot make sense of what Scripture says unless you're a Trinitarian. That's why it's so easy when Jehovah's Witnesses want to say Jesus is Michael the Archangel. A created being the greatest of all created beings still a created being and the holy spirit's an impersonal active force then you go oh so we are to be baptized in the name of jehovah god michael the archangel and an invisible active impersonal invisible active force so they share one name these three completely different well only two or even persons. Is that, is that what you're telling me? Once you force false systems of teaching to take their conclusions and then put them back into Scripture, the errors become very clear. So you can't make sense out of the New Testament. You cannot make sense how Jesus is treated. You cannot make sense of the places where Jesus identified as Yahweh unless you're a Trinitarian. So it's necessarily contained in the very words of Scripture itself. And it is found in the most ancient Christian sources after the New Testament period. So at this point, we could stop if we wanted to. And we could just simply run over to uh, Clement of Rome. We can run over to Ignatius of Antioch and just see reference after reference after reference to Jesus as God, being used in a way that would, make it very, very plain. This is not something that came along at the Council of Nicaea later on, et cetera, et cetera. This is the real thing. That is authentic Christian teaching. However, the Marian dogmas, the Marian doctrines of Rome are not authentic Christian teaching. No meaningful, meaningful as in consistent, meaningful as in, usable in any other area. No meaningful form of exegesis leads us to conclude these doctrines are true. History shows these doctrines developed either from non-Orthodox sources or developed centuries and even millennia after the time of the apostles. That's what is demonstrated by any meaningful examination of these teachings in the light of history itself. So we have to conclude these are not authentic Christian teaching. They cannot be bound upon the hearts and minds of believers. And as such, must be rejected by those who love the triune God, love his word and love his church because his church has never taught these things either. Pretenders to that term have. Remember that even to the current day, the Bishop of Rome bears the titles of the Trinity upon himself without rejecting them. He is called Holy Father, which is a phrase only used of Jesus, of God himself, God the Father himself. He is called an Altar Christus. Every Roman Catholic priest is, in his ordination, identified as an Altar Christus, another Christ, and he's called the Vicar of Christ. And of course, Vicar, the the one taking the place of, who is the one that is sent to take Jesus' place in the life of believers? The Holy Spirit of God. Holy Father, Alter Christus, and the Vicar of Christ. Titles of the Trinity that he bears himself. And we'll have to answer for bearing and allowing people to use those phrases, of himself. I think now you, you see why it is that so many groups attempt to attack the doctrine of solo scriptura. They have to. If they have doctrines and teachings that they wish to present as true, which they have them uniquely, and therefore this is how they gain followers and keep followers, then the ultimate authority of scripture has to be denied. Some other mechanism has to be brought into play that will allow them to, in essence, get around the problem of inspired scripture, that objective truth that does not change, that once for all delivered the saints' faith. One thing is for blessedly certain When Jude talked about the once for all delivered to the saints' faith, that faith did not include the bodily assumption of Mary, papal infallibility, the Immaculate Conception, purgatory, transubstantiation, the perpetual virginity of Mary, priests who are called an alter Christus, seven sacraments, that once for all delivered the saints' faith didn't contain any of that stuff. And that's what happens when you deny Sola Scriptura. So there's a reason why we emphasize its vital importance, and it's not just because we give a defense against the claims of Roman Catholicism. is because it is central to a proper, meaningful understanding of Christian theology as a whole and to the practice of Christian apologetics specifically. So I hope you found that to be very useful and helpful. I think it's important to go back and to get this, this grounding. And let's just be honest, there aren't a whole lot of people that would find this to be the most exciting program to present, but I think it's, especially our audience is well aware of the importance of dealing with these, uh, these particular types of topics. So I appreciate your watching. I hope it's been useful to you, and we'll see you the next time on The Dividing Line. Thanks for watching.